Hey, everybody. So we got to do the totally geeky thing. Everybody's got to turn the camera on. So I, 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 today I'm a, I'm a Andy Katz wannabe. He always shows up to these things wearing his hat, right? So I, I want to be like Andy. So I figured I would wear this hat. It's kind of cool, isn't it? I like it. Well, I don't think anyone wants to see what's underneath my hat right now. <laughs> yeah, actually, actually, part of the uh, part of the reason I'm doing this is I definitely have a hat hair, and so it's a completely narcissistic thing. <laughs> so anyway, welcome everybody. If you're new to this uh, Thursday gathering, check out his check out his lenses too. Yeah, I got, I got to do the lens thing here pretty soon. Those are awesome, man. Thanks. So what we do at these uh, Thursday gatherings is one of my favorite things is just hang out, talk about stuff. Um, we've been doing it for over a year. We started it with COVID. Um, social gathering, we're continuing to do it because people continue to show up, which is amazing to me. So uh, I do have a couple of comments today. Um, I, don't, I think last week I didn't have any comments, but I want to share something I was working on this morning and a couple of brief announcements before we start. Uh, I, we posted uh, the interview with Kulreet Chaudhary. She's a, a neurologist, Western trained physician, Ayurvedic practitioner, Siddha medicine practitioner, author of this book called Sound Medicine, which I really like. I'm going to try to get her um, back on because I, I only had an hour with her. And even though we got into some really cool things about the right view of sound, sacred sound mantra, there's so much more to talk about. Um, so I'm gonna to try to set something up with her a little bit later to talk about, uh, actually a tradition in Kashmir Shaivism um, is called Spanda, the vibrations, the, the Spanda Karakas, which is a really super profound non-Shaiva Tantra approach to sound. The, 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 Tibetan Buddhists, by the way, would do well to study this, um, especially those who are interested in mantra. It's a doctrine about the vibratory nature that everything um, in essence is of the nature of, of vibration, which, you know, in terms of physics, right? String theory, things like that. So it goes super deep. But anyway, so we posted Kulreet. Um, what else have we done lately, Andy? Uh, Benjamin Baird, the neuroscientist, we have him up there. Oh, Claire Johnson. I interviewed her this week. Um, and so she wrote this really killer book, The Art of Transforming Nightmares. Some of you may know her. I interviewed her almost two years ago. She is amazing. I, I refer to her, I endorsed her book uh, as the queen of lucidity. Um, first person to get a PhD in lucid dreaming per se. And she's just a rock star and her book is so good. So that one will be posted probably um, this week. Ian Baker's coming up. He's a really interesting author. I like him a lot and an expert in a really um, unique dimension of teachings, uh, the hidden lands, Bayol. Um, he wrote this book called The Heart of the World. I knew I met him here in Boulder and then in England a couple of years ago. So he's coming up as well. So lots of cool things are happening. Also, tomorrow, again, a few lemonade pitches here. Tomorrow's the last day to get grandfathered into this, this old pricing schedule because we're, for lots of reasons, we're having to change our fee structures. So if you're interested in becoming a member, tomorrow's your last day. Also, um, Andy said, we're starting to do um, some support forums to help people because um, the, the nightclub site is getting more, there's more on there. Um, we're trying to keep it as simple as possible. 
So he's going to do a, a kind of, you want to say something about that, Andy? Yeah. Um, so tomorrow we'll start with um, kind of just how to log in and navigate the website. Uh, so starting with the dashboard, how to access all the events. So we'll start with just like a pretty simple tutorial, I'd say. And then I'll answer any questions that people have live. I know quite a few people have had questions about um, if you're signed up for your membership now, are you going to be grandfathered in? Um, so I'm trying to respond to all those questions via email, um, but feel free to come tomorrow. It's going to be at 1 p.m. Eastern time. It'll be on Zoom. There's a link on the dashboard and I'll send out an email about it. Um, yeah, and you could ask any of those questions live. Um, yeah, Great. pretty much that. Cool. And also, my dear friend Joe Parent, he's, um, he's this week, um, Tuesday, we did the second week on his marvelous book. I have it right here because I'm attending. It's so good. A Walk in the Wood, Meditations on Mindfulness with a Bear Named Pooh. So Joe um, and his sister Nancy wrote this book. It's such a gem. And they've been doing this kind of tag team tandem thing, which is just so fun. And it's, it's absolute meditation in action kind of thing. So it's a wonderful kind of supplement to the Monday night thing that we're doing on meditation. So you can still join that. Yeah, um, I'm really enjoying the beans out of that. And so what I did want to share a little bit today, before I turn to some of the written questions, and I have to say some of the questions that came in today were among the best I've ever seen. You'll, you'll, these are some terrific questions. Um, so I want to get to those ASAP. But I wanted to share a little bit of what I was riffing on this morning with my writing. I'm, I'm doing a series of teachings for quite a large community in Korea. Um, I was out there a couple of years ago. I, I love the whole Korean scene. They're, they're amazing people. They're so warm. And I did a, a, a really big week thing in, in Seoul. And then I went down to a Zen monastery in South Korea for like seven days to do this um, fun program. So I'm doing a, a Mahamudra set of teachings. And I'm thinking actually today, just, you know, people say, can we attend? Unfortunately not. Um, for a number of reasons, the translation thing, it, it, it's not available to the general public, but I'm so jazzed about the material. This is the second weekend I'll be doing with them that just today I'm thinking, oh, I gotta do this you know, for my peeps. So stay tuned, um, something will be coming up where I wanna present this to you. And, and uh, I wanted to show a little bit what I was riffing on this morning. Um, Mahamudra is, uh, Climax teachings in the, in the Kagyu tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, the word, the word literally means great seal, as in stamp. Um, and the approach I'm taking in this program is we're going through what are called the four pointing outs. Um, all appearances are mind, that's the first one. Mind itself is empty, that's the second one. Emptiness is spontaneous presence, that's the third one. Spontaneous presence is self-liberated. Um, super profound teachings. And so this morning I was riffing on this thing that I want to share with you that uh, this is a marvelous statement that I um, discovered from this uh, Mahasiddha, great awakened master's name is Orgyampa, where he said this, and I reflected on it a lot because if you really sink your teeth into it, it's pretty profound. It, it has to deal with this notion of all appearances are mind, the first one. 
And this has immediate application to lucid dreaming and dream yoga. In fact, it's one of the things that, that we do in dream yoga is in fact come to this first and really monumental pointing out this conclusion that all appearances are mind. When you're in a dream and you're looking at that dream from the perspective of the awakened state, that's not that hard to see. Oh yeah, all appearances in the dream last night are just my mind. That's totally easy to see. Well, it's not so easy when you're lost in the dream non-lucidly, right? <laughs> because then, no, there's not even the slightest sense that all appearances are mine. The appearances in your dream and a non-lucid dream are every bit as bloody real as this. That's what constitutes non-lucidity. So these teachings have direct application to lucid dreaming and dream yoga. And so here's a statement around this that is really this is worth writing down and really reflecting on it. So this is from uh, Orgyempa. Appearances are simply, and I'll unpack this a little bit. Appearances are simply the all basis consciousness manifesting through the five senses. Write that down. <laughs> Write that down and really think about it. This is a this is an amazing statement. To you gotta you gotta really reflect on it because it's 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 a mind bender. All appearances, and we're talking about not just dream appearances. Now we're talking about this. All appearances are simply the eighth consciousness, the Aliyavijana, the all basis consciousness manifesting through the five senses. So put your mind around this. You know, what it, what it really asserts is a radical revolution in knowing and being that completely flips the way we see the world. I mean, we um, tend to assume axiomatically a given that the world is out there, we represent it, we take it in through our senses, right? Representationalism is what I write about in my book. Well, this radical proclamation of the Mahamudra teachings, which is also here, what, what Ogyepa does is he's joining it with the Yogacara. So I, I can't ex explain all these terms, but for the deeper divers, some of you who have read my book and, and know these terms, this may be of some interest to you. And so this completely flips the normal approach that, oh, I'm receiving information from the world. I'm, I'm registering it. <clears throat> no, no, no. It's the other way around. You're projecting it. You're emanating it. And so um, my friend Carl Brunholtzel, and he's one of the really great um, expositors these days of Yokachara in a tremendous body of um, translations that he's presented. Um, in one of these, and this is in my book, he says this. This is the end quote. This is, again, this is just unpacking what our campus is. What seem to be external paren objects, internal paren mind and the sense faculties, or both the body are not so, but just different aspects of the alia consciousness appearing as if close or far. It's an astounding statement. So I'm gonna say it again. He's saying the same thing that Urgempa said, just giving a little bit of granularity to it. What seems to be external, the external world objects, what seems to be internal mind and the sense faculties, or both the body, not so. Appearance is not in harmony with reality. 
These are just different aspects of the mind of the eighth consciousness appearing as if close or far. And so I got one last thing to say about this. this I, I get so excited about this because this is so profound to me. So among the many implications in this, and this is why I, I got to present this to you all, right? I can't just present this to the Koreans. I want, I want to share this with you later in the course. <clears throat> so, so stay tuned on that. But one of the implications around this, this really pretty monumental, <clears throat> is the Aliyah, the eighth consciousness is the unconscious mind, the deepest bed of the relative self-sense, the relative nature of reality. And so what this therefore implies is that we often, me included, just assume and wonder, you know, well, there, there's the unconscious mind and then there's the world. Um, but where exactly is this unconscious mind, right? Where exactly is it? Well, what these, what these implications are saying, you know, if you want to see your unconscious mind, look at your external world. Look at the way you structure, impute, project your world. And so if you want to see your unconscious mind, it's hiding in plain sight as your manifest reality. And so um, this is kind of astounding to me that if we really take a close look, and this is incredibly important because one way to look at the entire path is bringing all these unconscious processes into the light of consciousness. So that essentially, and this also ties into dreams, eventually there's no such thing as an unconscious mind. Literally, that's what it means to be awake, enlightened. No unconscious mind. And at that point, parenthetically, you're no longer dreaming because there's nothing left to see or dream. Dreams arise from the unconscious mind. Or another way to say the same thing is everything becomes a dream in the larger sense of the word dream as manifestation of mind. And so this really intimates a really powerful way to bring the phenomenal world into this process of bringing unconscious processes into the light of consciousness. Just look at your world properly and you will see your unconsciousness constructing, reifying, imputing, projecting this world, which you take to be axiomatic, a given. It's not a given, it's your construct. It's the way you make the damn thing. And so I just find this amazing, actually, that this, therefore, is highly empowering and humbling that, you know, the world isn't out there independent. Um, the world is, is co-created. Um, and one of the questions that came in, actually, from a physicist I'll address uh, relates to this. And so by looking um, deeply at the nature of the unconscious mind, using these maxims from Orgempa and Carl, we can gain a profoundly new relationship to our waking reality, that it is the unconscious mind on display. But this is what it means to be asleep. We don't see it as such. We take, we take it as a given, axiomatic. And so what this therefore does is it, it, it empowers the immediacy of, of bringing unconscious processes into the light of consciousness. You simply have to wake up to this, to see that in fact this is the case. By studying things like the Mahamudra pointing out teachings, by studying things like the Yogacara, and then doing things like dream yoga and lucid dreaming that allow you to see using the example dream of the nighttime dream, this process as it takes place in that arena. Um, so I'll, I'll let that go for now because there, oh my gosh, there's so much to say, in fact, a whole weekend. But I do wanna end with two supporting statements 
from psychologists in this case, because this is where we can really use the wisdom of the Western psychological tradition to augment this. Um, one comes from Carl Jung, you know, the great Swiss psychiatrist where this guy was unbelievable, right? Amazing. This is what he says. Projections change the world into a replica of one's unknown face. What an amazing statement. Projections change the world into a replica of one's unknown face. In other words, your unconscious mind. You know, the, there is no solid, lasting, independent world out there. It's, it's malleable, fluid, empty, dreamlike, empty. We're the ones that shape it, construct it, reify it, form it in our own image. That's our own one's unknown face, the unconscious mind, right? It's amazing. And then this other guy, this, uh, his name is Ludwig Feuerbach. He was a German philosopher, anthropologist, um, kind of a bridge between Hegel and Marx. He says the same thing. Man or woman, politically incorrect. A man projects his nature into, onto the world outside of himself before he finds it in himself. Astounding. I don't know, I find it astounding. So anyway, that's my riff for today. I got super jazzed when I was working on this stuff this morning. Um, more to say, maybe we can talk about this if you want, but that's enough for now. And so I wanna go, let me break up my, bring up my document. These questions that came in, I wish I would have pinged these up earlier because these are among the deepest questions I've seen yet. Um, so I'll do my best um, to give you my riff on some of these. And then like we usually do, we'll open it up and we can talk about all this stuff. So here's one, the first one's from Jill. Hi Andrew, I, recent, <clears throat> I recently took the sleep yoga course with Tenzin Wangyal Rinpoche. He is a rock star, I love this guy. And met again, I read this thing, I was like so inspired. Um, Jill, if you're listening here, it'd be fun to, to get you on and talk to you about this, but I'll read your question, I'll give you my riff on it. And then if you want to come on, we can talk about it. Um, Thank you, by the way, for being so um, willing to share your story here. So this is so cool. So I recently took the sleep yoga course with Rinpoche and met again, the sleep goddess Sagyig Dodolma. So she is, uh, I'll throw in some running commentary. Unlike in the Tibetan world of dream yoga, which does not have an analogous uh, sleep dakini or sleep deity, sleep goddess, the Bun tradition, that Tenzo Wangyo represents, they do. And her name is Sagya Dudoma. She's a really cool gal. I, oh, I have a picture, but I don't have a picture of her here. Um, she's pretty cool. So back to, back to Jill. I met her before, but didn't know quite how to make use of her. And this stuff just, just makes me smile. I just love you. I just love this stuff. Now I am more familiar with the use of these entities. So far, it feels like she accompanies me in deep sleep. Sleep feels a bit denser, fuller, much more healthy. So now I have the drala. There's a couple of things she's tossing out here. I can't unpack all these terms. So now I have the drala from the Werma Sadhana, which I suspect is Shiwaoka, right? Um, which I continue to practice, even though I've lost the Samaya with the Sakyang. Um, so I continue to practice the drala from the Werma Sadhana and uh, the goddess from 
the Bund tradition, Salut de Dolma. Both are white lights for me in the night and in the day. Could you say something about the use of these enlightened beings, entities, deities, drala? I also suppose lineage could be included here. They feel like an energy, but I can't put it into words and would like to understand it better. Okay, well, you're never gonna be able to put it into words. <laughs> you did a pretty good job because this is pretty ineffable territory. So first of all, super cool for you. It just really makes me smile. Thank you for sharing it. It's a wonderful offering. And so here's my riff on this. Um, if you can come back on when I'm done with my riff and can say more about how you met her and feel comfortable doing that, I think we would all be inspired by it. Um, because again, this is just really awesome. So a couple of things here, on uh, one level, super cool for you because these, these are your peeps, right? I mean, these are part of the skill set, so to speak, the armamentarium that we have, we meaning um, Vajrayana Tantric practitioners as our, at our disposal. And I remember very clearly once a teacher said something that really struck me when, when he said, um, you know, you guys, need, you guys and gals need to realize that you are not alone. You are not alone. And then he went on to riff on exactly this thing that you're talking about. You have all these yidams, deities, dharmapalas, lokapalas, protectors, this whole array of non-human intelligence, many of which are trans-samsaric, these are enlightened entities, as in fact this, this um, Daka and Daikini are, that we can call on, you can use them, and you are using them. So I'll say a little bit more about how you can use them more. Obviously, this is a colossally rich, wonderful topic. Um, Arguably, some scholars have heard one third of all Tantric Vajrayana teachings are devoted to this sort of thing. So on one level, you can use these entities, energies, non-human intelligences, whatever you want to call them, in a number of different ways. You can use them as guides and protectors, um, and therefore as external aids. Um, you can establish a relationship as you have to both of these energetics and call on them, which you're doing either directly or indirectly. And what is so awesome is they're responding, right? So that's one way to use them that is reasonably accessible through supplication, through devotion, through liturgy and the like. But even deeper, Jill, and this is where I think it just starts to get super interesting, is you can use these um, non-human intelligences, whatever you want to call them, uh, as archetypes of your own awakened mind, because that's fundamentally what they are. And this, of course, is what you're doing with, with the Wermasadna, um, with the Drala. It's also connected to what's called Yidam or deity yoga practice, for those of you who may know what that term is. And this is, um, oh my gosh, there's so much to say here. Um, this is where you are actually invoking these energetics, um, not so much as external aids, but as internal archetypal expressions of your own awakened mind. And there are so many um, incredibly rich uh, intimations, applications of this, because then what, it, what eventually it will lead you to is that what may seem initially to be an external infiltration of your dreaming mind from this agency, whether it's the Drala or the Daikini, um, at this deeper level, you actually start to realize, you know, you start to actually challenge that duality. In other words, 
the dakini and the da, and the 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 drala actually start to manifest as expressions of your own mind. So the experience becomes increasingly non-dual. Um, and so therefore you can work with them in both those capacities, a more conventional relative approach, super powerful, as I mentioned at the outset, is external agents, agencies that, that can you can invoke, just like other traditions do with their prayers when they're calling out for, you know, whatever, angels, whatever, kamis, um, in Shintoism, whatever tradition you want to talk about, you can, you can invoke these energetics into your mind space to help you, protect you, guide you, absolutely positively. But this deeper level, as you're doing with Werma already, this is where you're, you're putting rocket fuel to this. And you know the way to understand and augment this is to study, and it seems you are in this arena anyway, study as much as you can about generation stage practices. Um, and there's a vast literature here, Jill, Jungun Control Lodo Taye has written voluminously on this. Um, I mean, so many teachers, Trungpa Rinpoche, Kempo Rinpoche, um, so many teachers, uh, Trungpa Rinpoche in his book on the, on the medicine Buddha, he riffs a lot on this. Uh, anything that has to do with generation stage practice works with this. And so here, again, there's just so much to say. At this level, working with the deity, these energetics, fundamentally um, allows you to transfer your level of identity from this exclusive identification to form to this archetypal energetic expression. And the implications around that, again, there's just so much to say, I probably have to pause and, and let this ride um, just over purposes of time. But the idea is this is uh, really, really cool stuff. And Jill, if you're here and want to say more or want to share more, about how you met her, um, as well as she will occur. Um, that would be a great offering. So are you here and want to say something? Uh, Jill says sure. And I also have Joe who wanted to add a comment. Oh yeah, totally. Uh, let me add, bring on Jill. There. Gee, I Hi, got to both of you. That's amazing. Yeah, hey Jill. You're still, are, you, are you still in San Diego? I'm still in San Diego. Yep, I'm still composting with Bougainvillea. That's me. Cool. Um, this was a great program. I would highly recommend it to anybody. Oh, yeah. I, I, I listened so to fantastic. the It's really good, yeah. And I think it's the third, maybe the fourth time I've taken it. I, I'm a slow learner. But I, I started thinking perhaps... You know, I had a white light before I ever got involved in all of this Buddhist um, teachings. And I started to think maybe they're all the same thing. And I thought if I started working with the goddess that she would sort of morph into Shiwa Okar, but that didn't happen, which completely threw me off. Um, Why would she want to be a guy, right? <laughs> That's, I have to admit, that, I treat Shiva Okar as a woman. No, 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 no I'm, 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 I'm jerking your chain here. I'm totally playing with you. But it's like, why, why demote yourself to an, an anthrop, you know, anthropomorphized male deity when you're already more evolved as a female? So anyway, tongue in cheek. Uh, but I get no, Knowing what you just said, I, you know, I, I'll listen to it again, you know, a few times so that I can get all the parts of it. But from what you just said, really all I have to do is keep 
working with them, whatever happens with them, and and participate fully in it. And probably as most things happen, you know, it'll morph into my own thing. Joe, what did you want to say? Since I've got your attention, the two of your's attention at once. Well, it, I found it really interesting um, uh, that uh, first that Andrew is uh, including trans in this, the trans samsaric um, situation. And, and, and this, uh, this notion of the, uh, these energies, we actually talked about last night in, I mean, Tuesday night in the, uh, the Winnie the Pooh book. And I read some sections from Shambhala, the Sacred Path of the Warrior, because uh, Trungpa Rinpoche quotes, uh, refers to an A.A. A. Milne, the author of the original Winnie the Pooh books, poem about a, a young child uh, sad that it's raining out and has his face against oh, yeah. the, Christopher Robin, you know, against the window pane and decides that there are two raindrops coming down and they're racing. You know, he says one is John and one is James and um, and the, and the, he has them race. And by the one that he chose winning, because of that, the sun comes out. So in the, um, and I know Ken Wilbur talks about this in different cultures, in the magic and mystery culture, there's actually a notion that uh, things that we do create, you know, and, and move the universe. And we think of that as primitive, like how could a rain dance you know, bring bring rain. Uh, but what you were saying about everything being a reflection of your own alaya base consciousness uh, is an interesting thing. So if there's magic out there, but you said there isn't really so much an out there as it is our projection of what's in here mixing with out there, it takes us right into the non-dual. And um, what Andrew was talking about of Drala, we actually talked, I mean, we introduced it without saying those words in the, in the magic, discovering magic in the, the world. And, and I also did some research on the kami that have all sorts of different kinds of meanings of individuals, of spirits, of the living energy in the rocks and the trees and all that. So the anthropomorphizing of all these things is a very natural thing to do and a projection of our own consciousness. The idea of Yidam is that what we see as ourselves, our, our shape, is a costume on top of our real enlightened nature. But it starts as external and we see it as external. So when you do these visualization and and generation stage practices, you start with as, as external, but you also then find you move it into internal. And I was sharing something I think people will find interesting, which is the reveal scene in Cocoon, the movie Cocoon. And if you want to YouTube it, it's the pool scene where these aliens come down and take on human form. But when they reveal who they really are, they pull back this human and they are beings of light, which is really what we actually are. So if we're beings of light and they're these ex seemingly external um, 
goddesses and Shiva Okar and Dralas and all of these are external. The whole thing becomes a unified field of experience when you realize that you're wearing a costume and you're actually more like them than you think. You know, it's interesting to think of it that way because I'm using, um, do you remember how to say her name? Salje Dudalma. In order to pass over into deep sleep, which totally freaks me out. It's, it's a wonderful feeling. It's a great place to be. Guys, try this class. <laughs> it was a month in my own, in my own house, in my own bed. <laughs> But that, that, that makes it even more interesting. And I thank you both for your comments. Great question, Jill. Yeah, <clears throat> you, you can use her as a kind of transitional object, <clears throat> which is the way, you know, Tenzin Wangyal recommends it. You're transitioning. We need, the mind needs, doesn't need, but the mind tends to hold on to things as it falls asleep. And so what Tenzin Wangyal does with her is instead of holding on to a thought, you want to hold on to light, and she represents that light. So in that respect, she acts as a transitional object, which also, in a larger sense, beyond the scope of what we can talk about here, all the deities fundamentally in relationship to the ultimate dream, which is death, they actually act as transitional objects into not just dream, but death. So really great question and comment, um, Jill. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you. So here's one from Eris. And then, yeah, there's some really good ones here. So I'm having several lucid dreams a week. I would like to know how I can stay lucid longer when I fall asleep. What can I do? Ah, you can pray to the Dakini. Actually, I'm not kidding. Even though, even though I, you know, she is not, um, this deity Dakini is not part of the Tibetan arena. Ah, you know, they, they really are cross-dressers in my, in my term at this level. It doesn't matter. Um, and so if you have a connection to any of what we've been talking about here, Eris, you may want to explore this, um, this uh, contribution from the Bun dream yoga tradition. So that's one thing. What can I do? Also, when I am waking up in this in-between state, how can I stay there longer? I'm having more challenges with meditation than lucidity. Uh, obviously, you mean the meditation and the dream state. Which practices can assist me? Oh my gosh, so many. Um, on one kind of entry level, but still very powerful level, is just you know more stability through good old shamatha, sitting meditation, mindfulness. Um, I often riff on this, Eris, that when you're in the dream, you know, what, first of all, what is a dream made of, right? Well, a dream is made of mind. And so when um, this is why the moniker for dream yoga is the measure of the path. So when you look at your dreams and wonder about the stability, lack thereof, clarity, lack thereof, constancy or lack thereof, where is that coming from? Well, the stability, stability, clarity, lucidity of your mind. And so therefore any practice that you do during the day that cultivates stability, clarity, lucidity, it's the same mind expressing itself in two different arenas. So to work with those, to work with stability, you do shamatha meditations. To work with lucidity, you do the deity visualization practices. So if you don't have a connection to some of the stuff we've been riffing on, you can still cultivate that muscle of clarity by working with visualization. It's just the Tibetans um, in the bun pose 
and other wisdom traditions do it with tremendous rigor articulation. I mean, it's a whole battery array, it's a whole class of meditations to actually cultivate the lucid quality of your mind. The other thing you can do along these lines, and I, I discovered this just in my own um, explorations. A lot of time what happens uh, when I'm dreaming is yes, I follow the classic texts and I do what's there, but often I, I'm a little bit of an artist in my dreams. I, I wing it and sometimes I'll go, oh geez, let's try this tonight. I've done this for decades, something I've never tried before. And so I can't remember, maybe a little over a year ago, just for the heck of it, I started doing the following. I recommend you try it. The next time I was lucid in my dream, I took a dream object. I think in this case, I literally think it was an orange. This orange appeared in my dream and I said, oh, okay, hey, I wanna try this. And what I did was I, I just completely focused on the orange in my dream. And I, I, I just intended, I tried to make the orange as lucid and as brilliant as I could. In other words, I tried to infuse as much light energy into the, into the orange. I'd never done that before. I never read it before. I said, but I want to try it. And so it was awesomely cool. So, so I said it, this is orange, you know, it was kind of like black and white orange. And I like, you know, I did this like, you know, gaze. I focused in on that thing. And I tried to make the orange as bright and vibrant as I possibly could. So you can try doing that and you can try doing that now. So if you don't visualize these deities and do all this fancy stuff, don't worry about it. Visualize an orange, visualize an apple. I mean, literally close your eyes during the day and try to hold your mind on that apple. That's the shamatha part. And then using your mind's eye, try to make that apple or orange. How vibrant can I make this puppy? Infuse as much life energy into it as you possibly can. You will find that that object becomes literally more luminous. And so when I was doing this in the dream, it was killer cool because that dream that really was just my mind and I was just injecting it, infusing it with as much light. And that's what's in there anyway. There's no dream orange in there. That really, as Joe was saying, it's just the light of your mind, really. So I tried to make that orange light, pardon the play on double entendre here, as orange and as light as I possibly could. And so I pulsed this energy into it and that thing became like a little sun in there. It was awesomely fun to do. So I highly recommend you try it. It's fun, it's cool, and it will bring about this uh, clarity aspect. So lucidity, clarity, stability, anything you want in the dream, you can cultivate that during the day. Why? Same mind, different domain. Um, you can do it classically with the meditations, or once you understand the spirit of what's taking place, you can just do it on your own. And doing what I just said, I think you'll find super helpful. Okay. Uh, when I'm also waking up in between state, how can I stay there longer? Same thing. You know, your inability to stay anywhere in these liminal or dream states is what? It's contingent on, upon your ability. And this is the nine stages of shamatha. Your ability to stay longer on any mental object. That's what the nine stages of shamatha practice are all about. You know, you progress through these stages, each, you know, each stage is, is determined, that's what characterizes the stages, by in fact your ability to stay on these objects without moving longer and longer and longer. So just, you know, work out during the day and you will find yourself um, being able to do the same thing at night. Cool.
So this next one is awesome. This is from Roger, um, hi from Barcelona. I love the European scene. This is a terrific question. So um, Roger's a physicist, so he, he lends some real interesting credibility, uh, I should say authenticity to his questions. So this is a good, a good set of questions and comments. Uh, I would like to ask a question regarding your latest book, Dreams of Light. It's about the concept of illusory form. My question is, I'm gonna read the whole thing and then I'm gonna come back and unpack it because there's a lot here. My question is, how can I see the world as illusory if it's not a creation of my mind? I know that the world is a projection of my mind, but it's also obvious that it has its own behavior. I mean, it's predictable. It has its own precise laws. Yeah, you would know this, right? You said, I'm a physicist. <laughs> Good for you. The quote unquote real world is not like the dream world where everything is controlled by my mind. This is because the dream world is obviously my creation and the real world was created by another quote unquote infinite being or energy or whatever you wanna call it. So inviting me to see the world as illusory is an, and this is a great analogy. So inviting me to see the world as illusory is analogous to requesting a dream character to realize that the rest of the dream is also illusory. <laughs> I can see a dream as illusory because it's my creation, but a dream character cannot be conscious of the illusory nature of the dream. In the same way, I cannot be completely conscious of the illusory nature of, the reality, of this reality, of the reality, because I'm not its final creator. I'm just a co-creator. What an interesting set of questions, Roger. Um, okay, woo, lots to say here, my friend. So this is what comes to mind. Let's start over. Uh, it's about the concept of illusory form. My question is, how can I see the world as illusory if it's not a creation of my mind? Well, this fundamentally has to do with, first of all, understanding what it means to use the world, the word illusory and to see uh, and to see the world as illusion. What does that mean? So we have to start with that. I can um, answer the question rather briefly and then I'll try to unpack it. So fundamentally, you see the illusory nature of the world by seeing its empty nature. And so what illusion means in this regard is um, it doesn't mean that things don't exist. It basically means that the way things appear is not in harmony to wait with the way things actually are does not mean that things don't exist. We're, what we're doing is we're acknowledging appearance, but we're challenging the status of that appearance. So again, what it fundamentally means is that the way things appear is not true. That's the illusion. Appearance is not in harmony with reality. That's what it means to say it's illusory. So on this level, you're absolutely right when you say it is not a creation of your mind. If you were to assert that, as in fact, you can provisionally say this about a nighttime dream that is all your mind. And by the way, I've also softened my stance on that. I'll come back to that in a second. Um, you are right in, the, in that it's not a creation of your mind because the world is not solipsistic. Um, it's not ultimate selfism as, as the nighttime dream can be. I used to think, partly because of the sway of Western neuroscience, that all dreams were solipsistic. It's just my mind in there. I don't abide by that anymore, partly because of experiences I've had like Jill's, where I've had experiences in my dream 
where there are influences that enter my dream space that are not, they're not me. I mean, on one level, non-dualistically, there is no me, so it is me, but I don't want to go there. There are agencies and, and entities, energetics, just like Jill was saying, I've had these experiences as well, where I have, I have these um, experiences that ain't coming from me. So my view on the solipsistic nature of even the nocturnal dream has been, I don't abide by that anymore. Certain provisional levels of entry into the dream state, for sure. It's all mind, it's all neurological noise or whatever you want to say. But what you're talking about is, is, the, is the challenge of solipsism. Um, so fundamentally, the world is not solipsistic as you're putting. But it is in fact, as you're put, uh, asserting, Roger, it is in fact enacted by your mind. It's brought forth by your mind. And therefore it is reified by your mind. That's what I talk about in the book is, is the Kalpa. It's then proliferated upon by your mind. That's Prapancha. And so all these create this, this seeming illusion of, uh, of reality, you know, duality. Duality is the illusion. That's what we're trying to get to. So um, to further unpack this, and again, oh my gosh, you could give a whole course on this question. The, other, the next thing you have to do here, Roger, is you have to talk about the different dimensions of illusory form, right? So there's um, impure illusory form, pure illusory form, which by the way, that's what we were talking about earlier with Jill's question. That's the generation stage practices. That's the visualization thing. But the fruition of all is what's called perfectly pure illusory form. That's what we're really after. And, and this again, boy, there's just so much to say here. This is essentially to realize that, that actually everything is of the nature of mind. There is no ontology, there is, no, there is only epistemology, there's only this type of knowing. The world is made of mind stuff. Um, and you probably know this. I mean, James Jeans, right? The great physicist talked about this. So many of these kind of mystical quantum physicists, David Bohm and others talk about the mental aspect of reality. So um, maybe I'll just go on because there's more to say. And then if you're on, we can talk about it a little bit more. So I know that the world is a projection of my mind, but it's also obvious that it has its own behavior. I mean, it's predictable, it has its own precise laws. Well, that's true, isn't it? And you know more and more about this than I do, but that's true only up to a point, right? I mean, isn't it true, Roger, that that mostly applies to Newtonian levels? At atomic levels, does that what you say really hold up, this probabilistic nature of a quantum world? So yes, on one level, at the Newtonian level, for sure, is predictable. Um, at a quantum level, I think, again, you know more about this than I do. Is it predictable? Uh, the real world is not like the dream world, this is back to you, where everything is controlled by mind. True, that's absolutely true, but the nature of the real world is still the nature of mind. Uh, somebody you might want to explore here is, is uh, Bernardo Castro. I don't know if you know his work, he has a double PhD, really clever guy. He wrote this um, outrageous book, Why Materialism is Baloney. <laughs> What, what a great title, right? Why Materialism is Baloney. He's a really sharp cookie. If you haven't read him, I recommend you look at his work because he goes at this in a, in a languaging that may speak to you that fundamentally materialism is baloney. And he, he espouses um, using you know, Western languaging 
uh, an absolute idealistic way of looking at the world. Idealism in this case means the world is in fact made of mind. And so then the question becomes, my friend, again, I get so much to say here, the type of mind that we're talking about when we say the world is made of mind, it's not the neuroscientist's version of mind. This is mind as it's described in the tenets of things like clear light mind, where mind then becomes the actual nature of reality itself. Um, so I'm gonna go just a little bit more and then if you hear, you can come back on because again, there's just so much here. Such a great question. <clears throat> This is because the dream world is obviously my creation and the real world was created by another infinite being or energy or whatever you want to call it. Well, yeah, uh, geez, you know, the dream world, this world as we know it, is a co-created, um, co-construction by all these mind streams coming together to bring forth this particular reality that is in fact um, reducible to mind stuff. And again, what that mind stuff is, that is a, a, a colossally wonderful, refined question. Again, I'm trying to give you resources where you can explore this on your own. The place to go here, I often mention this, is the Kala Chakra Tantra, um, chapter two on the individual, where they talk about the collective um, creation of these world systems. And so from a Buddhist contemplative point of view, that's the text to go to, to see about how this world is in fact dreamlike as a collective dream, enacted, co-created using principles of collective karma. The last thing, and then I'll pause, and if you're here and want to come on, that's awesome. So back to you, inviting, to see, inviting me to see the world as illusory, as analogous to requesting a dream character to realize the rest of the dream as illusory. Well, again, this is a great image, but I don't agree with it because underlying this analogy is the tacit assumption that the world is solipsistic in nature, which is not. So if you're making the solipsistic basis, then, you know, um, proclamation, then what you're saying is true, but that solipsism doesn't abide here. So we're talking about, about a much more refined um, version of, of reality's mind. It, it doesn't imply solipsism. It implies this much more refined way of looking at things. So. Roger, if you're here and want to come on and want to play a little tennis with this, I'm happy to discuss it. It's such a terrific question. And like some of these really deep questions, it's hard for me to churn out just a, you know, a series of soundbite answers that maybe um, may or may not land with you. So, Roger, if you're there and want to come on, more than welcome. Otherwise, I'll Roger's be. not here. Oh, Roger, dude. dude it's, it's 11 in Barcelona right now. Oh, that's right. That's no Okay. I wish he was here because it would have been fun to play tennis with this one. What a great set of insights. Okay. All right. So a live chat question. Let me get a couple of those. And then there's a raised hand. So we'll get that one um, from David. So Andrew, what is the eighth consciousness? Uh, read my book. <laughs> David, and the eighth consciousness comes from the Yogacara teaching. That's uh, one of the great, some scholars say it's the most refined, sophisticated philosophy ever to come out of India. Um, Yogacara means derived from yoga. So these are insights um, and teachings that come from direct experience. They're not theoretical. This is what great meditators see. And so what the eighth consciousness is, and again, this is a, a really big topic. It's, it's the 
it's actually, it's a misnomer because it's actually the first consciousness in the sense that it's all the other seven arise from it. So I'm not sure why they call it the eighth. It should be the first, but they call it the eighth. They also call it the storehouse consciousness, um, the Aliyah Vijnana. Um, it's the relative bed of reality. It is, it is uh, that from which it's the ultimate bed of the relative unconscious mind from which all of the confused samsaric world arises. We drop into it when we fall asleep. And as I was saying earlier, if you open your eyes and look at the world properly, you will see the expression of the structures of the eighth consciousness, what are called the bijas, the seeds, the bakchak, the habitual propensities, the, the karmic seed, they're all stored in there. You will see those actually manifest as the, as the entire phenomenal world. So it's the, it's the bed of all relative manifest reality. Um, and again, literally entire books have been written about this. So for the purposes of time, next one from David, uh, another really big one. Does the awakened person experience the world as a waking dream? Yes. And, but then the question is, again, what are we talking about when we use the word dream? For me, at this level, David, dream is code word, code language for manifestation of mind. So yes, for what you're saying is true, everything appears as a waking dream. Then the question becomes, what does that dream? Then that comes back to the same thing Roger was asking. Dream is a manifestation of mind. Well, what is mind? These are really deep questions that require really deep explanations and explorations. But quick, easy answer, yes. Experiencing the world, back to David, experiencing the world through the senses and thoughts, but as a dream, correct, as a manifestation of mind, as a reflexively aware manifestation. In other words, the dream, just like the nighttime dream, by the way, exactly the same, the world appears as reflexively aware. The world is, uh, knows itself, just like in a dream. What do they experience that unawakened persons do not? <laughs> I chuckle because these are just colossal questions. Um, well, it, what do they experience that, that we don't? Oh my gosh, like everything, amigo, right? I mean, what you're asking here is like, what, what do the awakened ones perceive? I gotta let this one go, my friend, because it's just so big. And also I have to, you know, if you're interested, David, I have an entire chapter on my book, Dreams of Light, on this. If you really want to go into this, my friend, read that book. I, there's a whole chapter on the eighth consciousness in there. Um, basically, everything you're asking to greater or lesser degrees is addressed in that book, Dreams of Light. Um, but because, because I wrote about it there, because the, because the question is so big, um, I'm going to let that one ride for now. So I'm going to take one more. Actually, no, let's, let's get a live one, Chantal. So, finally. Right, Hi, Andrew. Hi. Um, I absolutely love this idea of projection um, because it really brings me back actually to childhood memories of actually trying to like think of like the ancient man, you know, looking into the sky, looking at the moon, wishing they could go there one day. And here it was, with this collective consciousness, we, we actually you know, even just to see a plane in the sky, like that actually still arrests me. I'm like, holy crap, like there's a thing flying in the sky. And it's like, we know, we know our ancestors thought that. So it's almost like that 
reality has been born into existence. So what I wanted your thoughts on, I know it's human consciousness, right? That's like part of the co-creation, but for evolution, when you see different animals taking on different form, like, you know, camouflaging themselves, is it because their consciousness is saying, hey, if only I could do this, only if I could be like this, I could survive another day. And then would that necessarily create that biological change for them to sort of continue on in another form that allows them to survive? So I don't know what your thoughts are on that in terms of like evolution, like with other creatures and their consciousness, but that's sort of where my mind was going. And I would just love your, your ripped on that. Yeah. Well, I think what you said is true, but I, I don't think you can anthropomorphize it. I, I don't think you can okay. bring this level of intentionality to it. Okay. It's basically um, uh, responsivity, cause and effect. So I, I don't think you can bring that level of intentionality to it. I think it's more just, and again, this is where there is resonance with what the Western scientists talk about as evolution. That is just this, you know, there, there, there is no, in, in this view, there is no fundamental driving agency, uh, a Godhead, a God figure, a teleological, um, you know, propeller. It's just things manifesting in that light. But what you said, if you extricate that, I think what you said is accurate. The rest of what you said, oh, Lordy, again, it's just one of these really compelling questions. And, it, and here we have to look at it. I think, again, um, within different perspectives and within different um, contexts, because on one level, um, and this is where, you know, this, the scientific community has just a tremendous amount to really contribute. I mean, like, we, we wouldn't even know about evolution if it wasn't for Lamarck, who, by the way, preceded Darwin. We wouldn't even know about evolution. It, it seems incredulous now to even think that, oh, what do you mean evolution? Well, before these guys, Evolution was not articulated as such. And so the very fact that we have this doctrine, we, we can attribute that to the genius of the scientist. And so um, I think it's very important to pay homage to the tremendous explanatory power that the scientific community and Western disciplines bring to bear on this, um, which is why I'm such a deep student of these traditions. They have so much to offer. So the question, Chantel, becomes really doubly complex because now then do we attempt to address this from a more Western Darwinian or Lamarckian point of view, or do we in fact try to recontextualize that within a larger spiritual milieu? That is a colossal issue, right? And so what I like to do, and this is why I'm a fan of integral approaches, is have room for both views. Listen to the extraordinary elegance of the Western disciplines and how they describe it. There's a lot to be said as Roger was intimating with his question about the predictability of the world and the fact that mathematics seems to work with you know, tremendous um, power that we can predict things, we can do things, all our science technology works on it. You can't deny that. Um, but then you know, in, in, a, in addition to that or in conjunction with it, replacing it maybe, um, you know, which has the greater explanatory power, that remains an open question. But then, you know, rephrasing this and looking at it um, through the lens of the great contemplative traditions and, um, and, and the way they explain this, you know, because therefore from that view, it's not just the play of frisky dirt. It, it has this kind of, you know, the, as, as Ken Wilber writes about it, the spirit of evolution or the evolution of spirit. That's 
also what you're juxtaposing with your question, that this is just the different ways that spirit plays, the different ways that spirit manifests. And so we have to be really careful not to conflate these two approaches, because if you do, you get into a hornet's nest of problems. A lot of people do that with the whole physics thing. You know, physics now explains spirituality. No, it doesn't. It just has resonance with certain aspects of it. So just because, again, this is like, I don't know what it is about today. Today is like the day of the enormous questions, right? <laughs> so like, you know, I mean, you could run with this, you know, you have to bring scientists and evolutionary psychologists, I mean, you name it, to talk about this issue. So I think the most important thing for the purposes of time is to honor, incorporate, um, respect the different views that come from these traditions. Don't try to conflate them. Leave each of the, in fact, when you're doing classic debate, even in the, in the, in the um, Buddhist world of debate, it's a major no-no. One thing you can't do is jump from one school to the other when you're debating one tradition to the other. So you have to debate within the context of that school. Same thing applies here. It, you, we can't just kind of flip-flop between them. We can do this kind of comparative thing for sure, but I think the, the take-home message for me is honor the, the genius that both traditions bring to it. Um, maybe know some of the parallels, um, note the tendency to conflate them, Built the tendency to become absolutistic in one view or the other, and therefore, you know, making your explanatory basket all the science or all in spirituality. We all do that. I mean, that's another real problem. So your question is a fantastic one, um, but maybe for the purposes of time, I'll leave it at that for now. Is that okay? Yeah, for sure. Thank yeah. you. Cool. All right. Yeah, let's get some easy questions here, man. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's a comment uh, from... Is it Lilo, Lilo or Lilo? I, ne uh, I never know. I, I apologize. So this is just a comment from her. Um, my shaman teacher said, oh yeah, this is about the eighth consciousness thing. If you want to know what you believe, including unconscious, of course, look at your life. Beautiful. Exactly. So this is just a comment on what I was saying earlier. If you want to see your unconscious mind, look at your so-called conscious world. Uh, Kara, I wonder how generation stage works with open eyes in the dark. Uh, you can totally do, you can do generation stage, Kara, under any circumstance. You can do it in the dark, you can do it with your eyes open, you can do it with your eyes closed. Because when you're working with generation stage yogas, you're working with visualization. So it doesn't matter. Um, even the teacher, the tradition even says it. It doesn't matter if you do it in the, in, in the dark, with your eyes open, with your eyes closed because the generation is, is mental. It's coming from mind itself. In fact, it's, it's recommended. Uh, it's harder to do it with eyes open, but it's strongly recommended um, to stretch your mind to do it with, uh, I, I'm sorry. It's easier to do it with your eyes closed, but it's strongly recommended to try to do generation stage practice with your eyes open. But you can do it under any circumstance um, because you're working with um, visualization processes, okay? Okay, uh, maybe one or two more. There was, I have to say one thing here. There was a, an absolute terrific question that came in from Eric. I didn't look at this doc, uh, my bad, until just a few minutes before I went on the air, so to speak. And so um, Eric, uh, if you're listening here, my friend, your question about running a commentary on the Bhagavad Gita, um, I have to reflect on this verse. So I just wanna acknowledge Eric if he's here. 
And then what I'm going to do is defer is I can reflect on this. I don't, I, I've read it, but I'm not a deep student of the Bhagavad Gita. So I have to reflect on this a little bit. But this is what he asked. One of my teachers' texts of choice as a roadmap for the journey is the Bhagavad Gita. Verse 116 seems to speak to our area of interest. Would you please expound on it from a nocturnal practice perspective? So this is the verse. That which is like night to all beings, there the self-control does awake. And that in which all beings are awake is like night to a seer. I mean, what a great line. And so my friend, um, simply because I, I looked at this uh, so late, I didn't get a chance to reflect on it. And because I'm not, um, this is not one of my main texts, um, I, want to, I want to spend a little bit of time and just simply tell you what comes to my mind. I can't speak with real authority. I'm not a scholar of this text, but because I find it marvelously cryptic, I find it encoded. I find that there's like twilight language in this. That takes a little bit of unpacking. So um, as an honor to you and the depth of this question, I'm gonna um, come back to it next week when I have a chance to sleep and dream on it, okay? All right, uh, starting to, okay, from Tanya. I've got about another 10 minutes and then I need to run for today. Okay, so when we hear Andrew's voice, the sound waves reaching our ears is mute. Yes, true. And the signal from our inner ear to our brain is mute. It depends on how, what you mean by mute, but I, I, I get what you're hearing or saying. So we can ask, where does the sound experience then take place in our awareness? Actually, I wouldn't even say it, Tanya, I wouldn't say even in our awareness. I would say as our awareness. Back to you. So as it is our awareness that actually manifests as a sound, then whose voice are we hearing? Our own. Uh, well, let me finish it and then I'll run commentary. So it is our awareness that manifests the sound, whether or not it is preceded by a mute sound or mute signal in the brain. This is how I see it. Well, um, <laughs> Yes and no. Um, whose voice are we hearing? Well, you say our own um, with a smiley face. Yes and no. Um, I mean, it, it is your own in the sense that, that fundamentally it has intercourse with your own awareness. But again, somewhat in, in, with, in connection to Roger's question that I answered in the solipsistic way, you can't say it's your own. Because at the deeper level, it's not even yours. You know, it's it's a it's a, a level of awareness that is beyond identity. So, uh, the most important thing that I'm deriving from what you're saying is, in fact, um, this at least is what I'm hearing, is that yes, I believe everything is reducible to awareness, um, to some level of mind, depending on how you define it. And so, if that's what you're saying, Tanya, then fundamentally, I agree with that conclusion, if that is in fact the conclusion that you're intimating. But I think we just have to be a little careful. You know, anytime you start talking about these kind of nuanced sort of thingies, um, we just have to be very careful. And I'm, I'm speaking about myself here as well. That's why, like with, with Eric's referencing to the Gita, I want to spend time reflecting on it. We just have to be really careful with the words that we use and, um, you know, avoid the temptation to just conflate things. And so that's what comes to mind with what you're saying. 
Um, if anybody else has anything to say on that, that's fine. And so I am actually, I have to run unless there's one last, oh, here's one. Okay, from Tim. Uh, when asked about his skill in lucid dreaming, I heard Andrew say a number of times I work really hard at it. <laughs> I wonder if you could elaborate a bit more on what this actually means. Oh, it's one of these personal questions, okay. Uh, his ability is inspiring and I hope to be able to achieve that also. Um, do you think that meditation is the prime factor? Ah, let's just, let's just land on this last one here, Tim. Do you think that meditation is the prime factor for developing the lucid dreaming ability? Yes, yes, for me, for sure. Um, and I think, you know, when I say I work really hard at it, you know, it's fundamentally because meditation has been such a central part of my life for so many decades, right? And so, you know, I think the take home here, Tim, is exactly what you're suggesting or asking. Meditation is the prime factor, absolutely positively. That's why, again, studies have showed this, like when I interviewed Ben Baird, a neuroscientist, um, he's one of these really cool contemplative scientists who does this sort of thing now. And I'm connecting to more and more of these guys and gals. They're so cool. That, you know, his studies have shown and others that meditators have more lucid dreams. It makes total sense. Similar to the question earlier about the orange and working with stability and clarity of your mind. It's because what are dreams made of? Dreams are made of mind. So if you're working with your mind during the day, you'll notice the proficiency naturally extending into the dream state. So, you know, when I say I work really hard at it, it's mostly because of, of decades of meditation, including, you know, like with Joe, three-year retreat, tens of thousands of hours doing that. And then very specifically, you know, the specific, the spe uh, specific practices associated with lucid dreaming and dream yoga. But fundamentally the take home message and I, I stand in my soapbox and profess this repeatedly, is that um, meditation is the practice of lucidity. And so therefore, again, to go even beyond meditators and more lucid dreams in the mind of a meditation master, and I am so far from that, all their dreams are lucid. There's no such thing as a, as a non-lucid dream. The light of lucidity is always on 24 seven. How do you turn that light on? By working with it, by exercising it by fundamentally meditating. And this is where dream yoga um, definitely transcends lucid dreaming. Lucid dreaming does not have this uh, quality. It doesn't, it doesn't really emphasize this sort of thing. So in short, my friend, um, meditate, really meditate, meditate. All right, last one from Roger. Well, this must be a different Roger, not the physicist Roger. Because the physicist Roger who asked the question allegedly is not here. So this must be a different Roger. Um, is a person's voice a projection of what we want it to be? Uh, again, yes and no. Um, it's not a projection in the sense that there is, there is something taking place that is um, not yours. You know, again, if it's a projection of what you want it to be, that tends to slide back into this, the near enemy of pressing the world to be made of mind, which again is this, this major travel of solipsism. So um, what I could say around this, Roger, is a person's voice a projection of what we want it to be. What does come to mind along that is that what we hear is often what we want to hear, um, which is why, you know, when politicians say what they do, 
a Democrat hears this and a Republican hears that. Or, you know, the Quran professes this, you read it, some person will die and kill for those same words and another person, you know, they'll hear something different. So in that level, that kind of psychological level, that type of projection absolutely is what we want it to be. The world is what we hope it to be, what we want it to be, what we, the word is vikalta, that we construct it to be. But again, that doesn't mean this new age thing that we create reality. That's, that's not at all what's being said here. So these types of questions, again, are, are a little bit more nuanced. And so when you say, uh, the, the really, when I work with these questions in detail, um, as with any type of analysis or deep analytic meditation or even debate, you literally take each word apart and say, what do you really mean by this? Are we, are we really even on the same wavelength? So a lot, you know, it's not wordplay. This is not, you know, trying to be philosophically clever. You're just trying to be really clear in arenas that are inherently somewhat fuzzy, messy, um, inarticulate. And so I'm not trying to be a philosophical nerd here. I'm just trying to share with you the way I've been trained in, in you know, my tradition to be just as clear and incisive and insightful and incisive as you possibly can be with the words you use, the languages you use. And because the minute you put something in words, you've already missed the boat. I mean, the minute you use language, you're already off, right? So right there, you're dealing with a little bit of a crap show. And so therefore, and I'll close with this note for today. That's why there's this classic um, pedagogical approach that I riff on all the time that comes, not just from Buddhism, but also the great other Indian traditions of hearing, contemplating, meditating. That yeah, we, we're sitting here, we're flapping our lips, I'm spewing out all the stuff. You guys are asking terrific questions. You're spewing out your stuff. It's terrific. But if we just leave it at the level of what we're doing here, that's just philosophy. It's not gonna change you. What's really gonna change you is, and again, like, like uh, uh, was it Eric's question or Tim's question, is, is contemplating it very deeply and then meditating. Um, and so fundamentally, that's where the real answers of so many of these super good questions will be derived. Um, these idle words would just point you in this certain direction. And then the real, the real answers come from within when you make these discoveries for yourself. Okay, so that's a nice place to end. Uh, we blah, 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 all in the vision and purpose of getting us to stop blah, 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 get on the cushion and have these experiences directly. But Thank you, everybody. I'm actually, the reason I have to go is so cool. I have to go for a walk with my dear friend, David Loy, one of my favorite guys. So, um, so do we want to try the mute, unmute everyone quick to say goodbye? Oh, yeah. So we started doing this, right. So what we're doing is everybody turns on their screen, gallery view, everybody unmutes. And in this totally geeky, corny way, we all say goodbye together. <laughs> Bye. 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 Bye.